You may be seated. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which was prepared. But they found the stone rolled away of the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Wow, what a powerful statement. He is not here, but he is risen. And y'all, that's the reason we're here this morning. We're here to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. And as it's already been said, we do that every time we meet. But today is one of those special occasions where we look into the whole message of what the resurrection is all about. Now, what many of you may find interesting is that the promise of the resurrection, the gospel, was first mentioned in the very first book of the Bible. Right after the fall of man, in Genesis chapter 3, God is speaking to Satan, and here's what he says. And I will put enmity between you, that's Satan, and the woman. And between your seed, Satan, and her seed, Jesus, he shall bruise, the NIV says, crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first picture of the gospel and the victory of the resurrection found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And then many years later, Jesus is there at the tomb of Lazarus, and he's speaking to Martha, and here's what he says. He says, I am the resurrection, the one who conquered death and the grave. That's what he was saying. And the life. That means one who can give life after death and the grave. And then he says, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall have the life that I was resurrected to give. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Which leads us to the whole sermon series, Promised Kept. Promise Kept. Why was the promise kept? Here, here it is. For us, it means this. He got up, and now I'm going to get up. And we're talking about this whole idea of his resurrection ensures our own resurrection. I want you to think about that. Look at the introduction there on your outline. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the clearest chapter in the Bible on the subject of the resurrection of Jesus. It reveals the promises that are kept and fulfilled by God through his son. So go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, if you were to say, okay, I understand the resurrection is a big deal. Oh, it is a very big deal. As it relates to our hope, as it relates to heaven, as it relates to being delivered from this world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul gives us the doctrinal account of the resurrection and its meaning for us in particular. It's not just that Jesus rose from the grave, which he did, which is all seen through scripture. It's not just that. It's just there's promises that come as a result, to, uh, as a result of, the, of the grave and the resurrection that are coming to us. 
And so we see, if you look on your outline, the proof of the resurrection. If you look at verse 3, it says, Paul says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the gospel. And that he was seen by Cephas, that was Peter, and by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 people at once, of whom the greater part remain today. But some have fallen asleep. Some have passed on. After that, he was seen by James. That was his half-brother. Then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. I want you to think about this. This is the proof of the resurrection. And many would say, okay, that's proof. We saw eyewitnesses' account that Jesus died on the cross. He was put into a tomb. The stone was rolled back. He said that would all take place. But not only would that all take place, there would be witnesses to, a, to, to look at that and say, that did happen right there in the first century. But then right away, right there in the first century, just years after that event took place, we see on your outline the skepticism of the resurrection. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has not been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. There were those out there who said the resurrection is not possible. There was a whole group of Jews who said that. I mean, they didn't believe in the miracles of God. They didn't believe in the resurrection. But yet, we see these eyewitness accounts. If you were to look into verses 20 through 28, you'll see the victory of the resurrection. And then there are the doubters of the resurrection. Look at verse 35. He goes and says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? If they're raised from the dead, that body's dead. How do they, what do you mean they're raised up? And that's a, it's a, it's a good question. But he says, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. He's basically saying there is a physical death, which we all will experience. We'll experience that. But there's also a new reality that comes after that death. And he says in verse 37, And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases to each seed its own body. It's basically saying that this body has to be deposited in the grave. And this body has to take on death that the new reality may come. That the fact that he got up from the grave means we can get up from the grave. And yet there were those doubters that were there in the first century. And then this is where I want us to camp out for a while. The promises of the resurrection. The first thing we see there is what is called a change in dimension. A change in dimension. I think many of us probably have often wondered, okay, once we die, once we move from this world, and the fact that he guarantees our resurrection if we know him as our Lord and Savior, and we've come to salvation, what happens after this body is laid down? What is this new body that he talks about? What's it going to look like? How's it, how will it operate? And we see this. So if you look at chapter 15, look at verse 39. Paul says, all flesh is not the same flesh. 
But there is one kind of flesh of men, another kind of animals, another kind of fish, and another kind of birds. He's talking about those of the terrestrial, the earthly. And then there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. That means these have distinct features about them and the way they operate and the way they are out there. But, but, but what is he saying? Paul is making a comparison in, the, in these verses. He's saying that there are earthly bodies and there's creatures who are on earth and there's heavenly bodies and there's the sun and the moon and the stars. To the changes of our bodies we'll make, we'll go from an earthly body to a heavenly body. And that's what he's doing. He's trying to make a comparison here. Now, how do we know that? Look at verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead speaks of those who are in Christ. Now, he uses two words to describe the difference. It's right there on your outline. From a terrestrial body, a fleshly, which is our present reality. We're living in that reality right now, okay? To a celestial body, a glorified body, which will be a future reality. Now, think about this. This body will be laid down with all its limitations, with all its hurts, all its pain, all its sorrow. The fact that we're living in a fallen world, it's not just there's going to be a body change. There's going to be a whole scene change, a whole new reality. But let's talk about the body a little bit more. The difference can be seen in John chapter 6. I want you to look here on the screen. This is a phenomenal passage when you think about it. This is after Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. Okay? Or, I'm sorry, before he's resurrected. This, this is another saint. I'm sorry, I messed up. John chapter 6. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had come to them. Then the sea arose, had not, Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles out on the Sea of Galilee, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. Now, how many of you would say, pretty cool body he's got there? I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty cool. Again, these are glimpses, I believe, of the body that we're talking about. And drawing near to the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat. And immediately, the boat was at the land where they were going. There was some phenomenal that took place around Jesus at this point. Now, Jesus basically annihilated both time and distance. It appears that our resurrected bodies will have the, not have the limitations our bodies have now. Again, it's a, the idea of going from a fleshly body to a glorified body. Now, it's interesting that when Paul talks about this celestial body, he carries us to a new dimension where all of our concepts of time and distance appear to be changed. Next, the promises of the resurrection is not only a change in dimension, but a change in destiny. Look at verse 42. So also is a resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. That's the, the burial, the, the grave. But it is raised in incorruption. Now, that's a very interesting phrase. So what do we find here? Look on your outline. From a body destined for the grave, for a body destined for glory. Now, Paul tells us a very interesting story in the book of Philippians. He, he's in prison, possibly facing death. He believes his time is limited. Yet, 
he, he, he talks to the church at, at, at Philippi, and he basically says, my goal or what I would like to do is go to Spain and do some more evangelism. I'd like to go tell people about Jesus. But he says this, if, if just so happens that my prison term leads me to death, he basically said, I have no problem with that. And here's why. Because Paul at one time said he'd been called up to the third heaven. Okay? Paul says this. He said, basically, I've been, I've, I've, I have actually witnessed the throne room of God. That's definitely what he's saying when he's talking about the third heaven. And so he's seen things, he basically said, that were untranslatable. And it appears that after this encounter with heaven, Paul had a desire to leave the present reality for his future reality. He longed for it. He already had a taste for it. In Philippians chapter 1, he says this, For I am hard-pressed, having a desire to depart, to go home to be with Jesus, and be with Christ, which is far better. So after catching a glimpse of heaven, Paul was what you could call an addict of heaven. And this is exactly what the word desire means in Philippians 1.23. It means he lusted for the world to come. Why would he do that? Because we have a change of destiny. We will trade in a body destined for the grave for a body destined for heaven. Next, the promises of the resurrection. We see a change in dress. A change in dress. And, and by the way, I, I kind of noticed that here this morning. Some of you are wearing ties. You look really sharp. Well, it's good to have you in, in a tie. Some people I've never seen a tie before. Some of you are wearing sports coats. You look really nice. All of you are wearing masks. I'm not sure. No, anyway, that, that'll be over with. <laughs> but it's a, tr a change in dress. Look at verse 43. It says, it is sown in dishonor, but it be raised in glory. So we see from a dress of dishonor to a dress of honor. Now, I don't know about you, but I've told you many times, I love documentaries on, on nature. I love to see how nature plays itself out. I mean, how many of you ever been watching some kind of nature thing and almost had your own private worship session because you saw the vastness of how great God is and you see all the different things he's created and the beauty that's out there. Well, one thing that I've noticed is, is there's probably not a better illustration in nature than that of a caterpillar. And I've shared this with you before. Have you ever noticed how a caterpillar gets around? He brings his back end to the front end by arching his back. Now, how many of you would like to get around like that in life? I mean, that would be very tormenting. It's really a painful way of getting around if you, if you relate it to us. It's a humiliating way to get around. Can you imagine how... He feels as he looks up into the sky and sees a butterfly. Now, this is my attempt of getting into the mind of a caterpillar, okay? Here it is. I wish I could fly. If I only had wings, I would fly from flower to flower, from tree to tree, but I'm a lowly, wretched grub. Then one day, something starts to happen. He realizes his life as a caterpillar is coming to an end, so he builds a little coffin, crawls inside, and dies to the only life he's ever known. There, the caterpillar lies on the underside of a twig in his coffin when something begins to happen within him. He begins to change. Then he emerges out of his coffin changed. He goes in a caterpillar, but he comes out a butterfly. 
He is the same creature. Listen to this. He's the same creature that went in that goes out. But he has been changed. He has been transformed. He spreads his wings and, and soars through the sky. The caterpillar was sown in dishonor, but raised in honor. Y'all, I can't think of a better illustration in creation that describes what our new reality and new body will be like. Next, the promises of the resurrection. It's a change in disposition. Look at verse 43 again. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. Now think of this. We go from a body of weakness to a body of power. Jesus is with his three disciples they go into the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the night before his crucifixion. You remember the story. He goes, he says, hey, you wait here uh, and pray. I'm going to go in and, and, and a little bit further, and I'm going to get with the Father. And he, Jesus begins to have his prayer time, and he goes, he checks on the disciples three different times. How many of you remember the story? And he goes back that third time, and he finds them asleep just as he did the other two. And here's his words. The Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. How many of you would say that's pretty much your testimony today? <laughs> it is, isn't it? But Jesus acknowledged that. He's talking about a body of weakness, but here's an example of a body of power. And this is the illustration I was, thought I was talking about earlier. Here's what he says. Do, do you remember the story when Jesus had just been raised from the dead? The Bible says for three days he went into the nether regions. He comes back by the tomb to pick up his body. The body was now a part of him. It still held the prince of the nails. He makes his way to the room where the disciples are gathered. And Jesus, excuse me, John tells us that the apostles were shut up in a room and terrified. They thought they would be next. Have you read the account? Jesus is now standing outside the door. And the Bible goes on to say that he then appeared before them. Luke tells us at that moment he ate fish and honeycomb. I don't think that's the cereal. I think it's just honeycomb. <laughs> and then John tells us he just then just disappeared. It appears possibly that we have another idea of what a body of weakness transferred for a body of power looks like. How many of you think that would be pretty cool? That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? How many of you like to have a body like that right now just to freak people out, you know? <laughs> that, that would just be a cool body to have right now. And here's what I take from this, and many of you called it already. In that new body, we still get to eat. We still get, I mean, think about that. All those things right there, and we trade a body of weakness for a body of power. Next, the promises of the resurrection, we see a change in dynamics. Look at verse 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there's a spiritual body. As so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, became a life-saving spirit. Now, that's a reference to Jesus. However, the spirit is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. Now, let me tell you something about our bodies. It's not, going to be, it's not going to be that we're going to be floating around everywhere. Doesn't give us any indication of that. We're not just some spirit body. But we are a transformed body that carries on some of the things of the old body, but are manifested in strength 
as a new body. So we're not just kind of some spirit that hovers. So look at what you see here. We go from a body sown, that's the natural, to a body raised, that's the spiritual. Colossians 1.18 says it this way. He, speaking of Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's the one. His death, his resurrection makes everything that we're talking about possible. Now, here's the question. How can Jesus be firstborn from the dead? If you know your Bible, you'll probably understand and know this, that Elijah raised one from the dead. Elisha raised two, raised two from the dead. Jesus himself raised three from the dead. So Jesus was not the firstborn from the dead. He, he was actually, if you let's study scripture close enough, he was the seventh. But how could he be the first? The mystery is discovered in the story of Lazarus. How many of you love the story of Lazarus? I mean, it is so cool. Any way you look at this story, it's one of the coolest stories in the Bible. Lazarus is about to be raised from the dead. In this account, John writes that at the tomb of Lazarus that Jesus weeps. Why did Jesus weep? The answer seems to give us a clue to why Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. Think of this. Jesus, some people say Jesus wept with Mary and Martha because he knew what he was getting ready to do. He could be weeping for their own sorrow and the torment of man and the condition of man. He, that well could have been. Or he could have been weeping for Lazarus and what he was about to do to Lazarus. Think about it. He was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Based on everything we've been reading so far, how many of you would want to go back to that body? Anybody? Anybody. Think about it. He's about to put him back into his natural body. Now, thank you. Evidently, the, we're going to use this one now? Okay, all right, we're going to use this one now. Thank you for interrupting my great story here. No, just, <laughs> just messing now think about what he's going to do. How many of you um, have ever had on wet clothes? You ever had wet clothes on? How, how many of you know how refreshing it is to take those nasty, damp, probably smelly clothes off? How, how many of you ever had the privilege to do that? What if you were told you had to put those back on? I mean, I'm talking about for years, you're going to have to exist. You didn't exist in that, so you know the difference between what it means to be in wet clothes, nasty, stinky clothes, and now you're, you've had this new experience, and now you're getting ready to have to go be put back in it. Poor Lazarus. Poor Lazarus. When you think about it, you, have, you see a whole different meaning. Here, here's the clue here. When Jesus was raised from the dead... He was raised into a resurrected body. I want you to think about that. He died once and then he rose again. All the others, the other seven that were raised from the dead, they had to die again. Think about it. That's, that's what the Bible says. They had to die once again. And Jesus is there and he's talking about uh, the, the fact he's got to put him back into that natural Body. So we have a natural body that one day we will have a spiritual body. Next, the changes in the resurrection, the promises of the resurrection, a change in durability. How many of you would like a body that's a little more durable than what you have now? How many of you remember a time when your body was very durable? 
Uh, look at the young people in here. If you're teenagers and 20s, you have no business laughing. Don't even come back. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> come back when you need a new body, right? No, no. I mean, think about that. We, we all wish we had more durability. I went out yesterday and cut the grass with a mask on because I have allergies. And I almost died. I almost died out there. It wasn't that long ago I was running. Anyway, I got to move on. Can you tell this message really spoke to my heart? <laughs> Think about it. Verse 47, the first man was, on, was of the earth made of dust. That's Adam. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And, and as was the man of dust, so also are we made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are we who are heavenly. And as we have bore the image of the man of dust, that's our current reality, we shall also one day bear the image of the heavenly man. Boy, that's exciting. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Y'all, this is a description of us. This is a description of what is out there to come. So we move from a body of mortality, one that will die, one that will cease to exist, to a body of immortality, one that will never die again, never be touched by the leanings and the weaknesses of this world. And how do we know that? First John 3, 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Next, we have a change in defeat. Look at verse 54. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, Hades, where is the victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. What he's basically saying is God has basically... Uh, overturned the natural limitations of the flesh and its response to the law. It literally means that something happened, not just in the resurrection, but what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf that was guaranteed by the resurrection. So how was the victory won? I mean, look on your outline from a body of defeat to a body of, of victory. How was it won? Look at verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. How did it come about? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. How was the victory won? On the cross. Victory over sin for us. He took on our sin. He took on the wrath due us. He now gives us his righteousness, which makes us, listen, makes us accepted and perfect before God and His holiness. He basically, there was victory through and over death. And now Jesus gives His life to us. And the thing that we need to note when we go back and look at that whole scene of the death, burial, and resurrection is the fact that the enemy did not take His life. Jesus laid down His life. And that sets a whole different precedent. It means He was in charge through the whole process. The whole process. And that's the reason we have victory. We have victory. 
And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that this can be true of us. So look at the application. Do you realize that the promise of Easter is victory? Do you realize that Jesus has won the victory over sin, death, and even our flesh through his death, burial, and resurrection? And now we are called to live in the reality of what God has provided through his son's resurrection. Look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Y'all, the newness of that new transformed body that's coming our way. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning, you've come to terms with that salvation through what he asks. Repentance of sin. Turning away from your sin and turning to him. And the promise that was given through Jesus Christ our Lord. And now you seek to live your life before him. That's what verse 58 says. He says, now live in the reality of what is to come. That at some point, this body will be laid down. But there is a new day coming for those who know Jesus. A new body, a new, a new reality in which he has for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'll close with this. In verse 1, very interesting. Paul writes this also. For we know that if our earthly tent, if our earthly house, this tent, speaking of his body, is destroyed, we... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the glories. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality will be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. You see, the Spirit, when we come to know him, is a guarantee that what I just read will happen. That's what the Bible says. So we are always confident knowing that while we're at home in this body, we're absent from the true reality of who the Lord is. For it is here that we walk by faith, not by sight. But we are confident, yes, well, please, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. He's talking about a whole new reality. And that's what the resurrection guarantees for us. Would you pray with me this morning? Would your heads bow and your eyes closed? I, I just want to simply ask those of you in this room, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you come to the terms of salvation that he set forth through the repentance of sin, by, by placing your faith in him, by trusting him for your salvation? I don't know where you are this morning, but I just want to simply ask, and you by raising your hand is basically saying that you know he has risen from the dead. So here's the question I have for you. How many of you know for certain that you know without a shadow of doubt that you know that Jesus has died for your sin and that you're assured of heaven and a new body one day? Would you raise your hand if you're assured of that? Wow, many people in this room. Maybe there's some of you who couldn't raise your hand. I want to ask you, what better day to give your life to Christ than on Easter? When we celebrate the victory of salvation, the victory that he rose from the dead, died for your sin, and he just asked for you to come to him. What I want to do is ask you to 
before you leave here to talk to myself or someone else you've seen up here on stage about how you can be guaranteed that new life. I hope you'll do that. Father, we thank you for what you've done here this morning. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that that because you got up, one day we get to get up. And we praise you for that. We thank you for your provision of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.